It's been a long day and it's half past seven. And uh, don't worry, I'm not going to keep you here till half past eight. It might even be quarter to nine if we get through this chapter. No, not really. Uh, The year is about 5152 AD. Paul, Silas and Timothy are writing a letter to a young church in Thessalonica, that great seaport, that cosmopolitan city, there is a group of men and women who have been called out and have come together in a local church. And what Paul wants to do in this opening section of the letter is to encourage those young Christians to persevere, to keep going on. Now you think how vulnerable that little group of Christians is. Paul already starts talking about the fact that they're being persecuted, they're, they're undergoing trials. Uh, I watched a wildlife program not so long ago where there's a duck that nests in a tree and the little ducklings, when they just leave the nest, they drop into the water. And in the water, of course, there is all manner of fish uh, and otters that might come and eat them. And that little church, that, think of it like a little duckling just falling out into the water of this great city, opposition, trial, persecution. Are they going to survive? Surely they're just going to be gobbled up in a moment. They're not going to survive. But Paul starts, there's three points tonight, Paul starts by commending them for the progress that they're making. It's a massive encouragement to Paul as he sees that they're making progress in the Christian life. And then later on in the chapter, he's going to... um, urge them to continue to persevere because it's worth it. And then at the end of the chapter, he's going to encourage them even more. And that links in so much with what we've been saying about prayer. He is going to pray for them. He is going to support them in the most effective and practical way he possibly can by praying for them. So just three brief points this evening as we close our day together. He talks about Christian growth in verses 3 to 5. He's thrilled by what he sees. We are always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because it's an interesting section, because it tells us, first of all, this Christian growth is visible. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about you. Something was happening in Thessalonica that could be seen, and Paul and Silas and Timothy could go around talking about it. Now, often we think that Christian growth takes place in secret. Now, it takes place, yes, deep in our heart and in our mind. But Christian growth is always visible. A lot goes on in a seed when it's germinating, but nothing really is significant until the root pops out and the shoot comes out. Christian growth starts in the heart, but it doesn't stay in the heart. And it's plainly obvious that some people are growing and some people are not. Paul was really encouraged Because this fledgling church, he's writing to them for the second time, he sees that they're growing and he can not only see that growth, he can define that growth. You know, what is Christian growth? What is growing in the Christian life? Verse 3 will give you the answer. We are always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Their faith the component parts of that faith, their knowledge of God and the Lord Jesus Christ is increasing. Something we all need. The access we have 
to Bible teaching is unprecedented. And we've been thinking about, you know, three quarters of the world's population live in countries where their freedom to worship the Lord Jesus Christ is severely restricted. Their access to books in their own language, to people who read the Bible one-to-one with them. Imagine if you're the only Christian in your village. And the only Bible teaching you're going to get is from the radio and the internet when it works. You imagine that. There is no excuse for us, my friends, not to be well taught, not to be growing in our faith in terms of our knowledge. And the more we grow in knowledge, the more we are able to believe. And the more we believe, the more we can put the whole weight of our trust on the Word of God, on our salvation, our family life, church life, professional life, our life as citizens in every other area of life. And then Paul goes on to say, He talks about love. The love all of you have for one another is increasing. Now, love in the Bible has an emotional angle to it. I felt a great sense of love for the people I'd never met when we were introduced to them by Dave this evening. And we could shed a tear, and we probably did, a number of us. But love for those people is far more than us just being emotionally moved. Here are other people, and here am I. And I will do everything I can to help them, to be a blessing to them, and to do them good. Now that starts in our own church family here, and it extends out throughout the whole world. I will do all I can for their welfare, physically, mentally, spiritually. Even if I have to sacrifice myself, the Lord Jesus Christ sacrificed himself for me, And there is, as Paul commends the Thessalonians for their growth and the progress they are making, the balance of faith and love. And if we are not using the wonderful truth that we receive here week by week, in our life groups, in our one-to-ones, in our Bible readings, in the notes that we use, if we're not using that truth for the good of our brothers and sisters, here and abroad, as Paul says to the Corinthians, We're nothing more than discordant, empty noise, if I have not love. And then Paul points out that this Christian growth is independent of circumstances. He says, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. You know, sometimes we say, if only, if only I had more money, if only I had a bigger house, if only I was in a different church, if only this and if only that. When we hear of Pastor Gideon and others like him, surely that all fades into complete insignificance. Paul says to the Thessalonians, you know, in the world's eyes, you've got nothing going for you. You wake up in the morning, what have you got? Trials, oppression, aggression, opposition, threats. But you are going forward, and I can boast with Silas and with Timothy of the progress you're making in the Christian life. God's plants don't grow in greenhouses. They grow in the wind, the rain, the scorching heat. God's plants grow best where it's difficult. And it's ridiculous to pretend, for me to pretend or you to pretend, that you'd be a better Christian if you were somewhere else. And also, Christian growth is humanly inexplicable. Verse 5, look at it with me. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right and the result you'll be counted worthy of the kingdom for which you are suffering. Now, there's a mystery. 
There are some people that are growing in faith in a world that doesn't believe. It's true here, it's true in Nigeria and China, in Saudi Arabia and throughout the world. There are some people that are obviously growing in love in a world that is increasingly totally self-orientated. Now that doesn't make sense, humanly speaking. They're growing in love and faith together in circumstances that are very much against them, but they are going forward. And there is no human explanation for that. And the actual explanation Paul gives is this, that we live in a divided world. There are some people in the world who justly are under the judgment of God, he says, and there are other people who are being declared or counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which they're suffering. And the fact that we grow in faith and love and make progress is clear evidence of this divided world. The Thessalonians and we are not under the judgment of God, but we're being counted worthy for the kingdom of God. His, work, his grace is at work in us. I mean, we've been introduced to some folk tonight by Dave that it makes no sense at all that they carry on in the way that they are, that their faith and love are growing. And Daph said, you know, Nigeria, China, where the church is growing the fastest. It wasn't long ago before Peter was sharing with us that the fastest growth in the world is in Iran. Now that makes no sense. Well, it does when you move on to the next point. In verses 6 to 10, Paul says it's worth going on and he gives reasons why. Verse 6, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. God is a just God and he will punish the wicked. Make no mistake about it. And he says to those Thessalonians, as you go through persecution and trial, you remember that. Paul says to the Colossians, anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs and there's no favoritism. There he's talking about the relationship between masters and slaves. So in every tiny detail of life, we know that the Lord will sort everything out in the end. Verse 7, and the Lord will give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. God is a just God. He's going to pay, he's going to punish the wicked. He's a just God and he's going to give rest to his persecuted people. It doesn't look like that now. The world is getting more and more wicked and God would not be just if he didn't judge it. And Christians becoming more and more persecuted and God would not be just if he didn't give them rest from that okay Paul that's all very well but when is this going to happen because it certainly isn't happening now when will the accounts be settled when will wrong be put right publicly visibly eternally verse 7 this will happen he says when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. This is not the Lord Jesus coming this time as a babe in a manger in Bethlehem, but coming from heaven. This is the momentous event, capital M, capital E. When this universe, as we know it, will be rolled up like a moth-eaten rug and a beautiful new carpet laid. Well, tell me more, Paul. This is exciting. He's going to come in blazing fire with his powerful angels. It's a day when the curtains of heaven are going to be drawn back and we shall see what is just not visible to us at the moment. 
We'll see all the angels in their brightness and strength. The Lord Jesus in blazing fire. This great event, when the Lord Jesus Christ comes again, will take place. The world has forgotten all about it. The world wouldn't even want to think about it. And its only reaction now would be how stupid we were to believe such nonsense. But this is the great historic certainty. Already written in God's history book. And 24 hours nearer than it was this time yesterday. Bethlehem has been written in that book. Calvary has been written in that book. The resurrection was written in that book, the ascension of the Lord Jesus returning to heaven. And so has that second great coming of the Lord Jesus. And what will the Lord Jesus do on that day to the wicked? Verse 8. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now, doesn't the world have such a poor view of Jesus? If they have a view at all. At best... It is one religious leader among many, at worst a figure for ridicule and parody and abuse. But when the Bible here speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ, it speaks of him as the mighty king coming in blazing fire with his powerful angels. And we see the picture. All the nations before him, the dead are raised. All those that are living when he comes, all the angels before this great king, the Lord Jesus Christ so despised by the word world and the last word is his word and the final separation is made by him and him alone and here are the wicked and who are the wicked those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus they're one and the same thing nobody knows God except those who obey the gospel of his son the only way you will ever know God is through believing in the gospel And that's not popular, and we know that's not popular. And in our wonderful culture, where everybody brings such diversity to the table, we all bring our light together, and we make such a brighter light. Now, you challenge that, and it's becoming increasingly difficult to challenge that mindset. But God speaks, and he declares how he will be known. By obeying the gospel of our Lord Jesus. I am the way, the truth, and the life, said the Lord Jesus. No man comes to the Father but by me. There's one God, a mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. No other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And Paul underlines it if you don't know Christ, you don't know God, and you're still among the wicked. And the wicked, verse 9, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now think carefully what Paul is saying here. He's writing to a church that is vulnerable and persecuted, knowing trial and opposition that is growing in faith and love and assuring them that one day what they are going through, this will be sorted out. Now when something is destroyed, it ceases to be. It's over, it's finished once and for all. But Paul wants us to understand the ruin of unconverted people and to encourage the Thessalonian Christians that what they are experiencing has an end and God will bring an end to it and he will right every wrong. And so he uses that word everlasting. Everlasting life, everlasting punishment. Now do you really think that Christ suffered on the cross? 
the physical and mental agony, and worse, the spiritual desolation of the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me to save you from eternal sleep? From oblivion, from ceasing to be. The destruction of the wicked is everlasting. Their ruin is everlasting. This is not the occasion for a profile of hell, but Christ died to save you from eternal hell. And however that might offend your sensibilities this evening, however we might not be able to get our heads round it, that is of no matter. It is true. And if the wicked go into an eternal sleep, you know, they become sleeping beauty forever, and literally wiped out and ceased to be, that is to make a mockery of the agony of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God would not be just. And it's to make a mockery of the immensity and awfulness of human sin. Now the punishment will be real. It'll be just. It'll be total. It'll be awful. Verse 9, shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Now you know that God's present in his creation, don't you? Mums who, who, who don't know the Lord Jesus love and care for their children. Aid is given to starving people by people that are not Christians. And we have police and we have government. Because there's a certain grace from God in the world that doesn't save people but restrains them and contains evil. That is the presence of God. Not everyone is a liar. Not everyone is a murderer or a thief. Someone being murdered now is, is still generally an exception. And most people behave normally and in a civilized manner because God himself is present, restraining their sin and the wickedness of their heart. But what happens when that presence is withdrawn? Imagine a place where there is nothing good at all. Now, when the Lord Jesus Christ appears, the world will be seen for what it is. Those who are in Christ, in God the Father, those who are not, and it will be seen. But for us who are in Christ, verse 10, there is glory on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. What do you mean, Paul? What do you mean glorified in his holy people? That will be glory when we are gathered in the great company of our brothers and sisters, all our blemishes, every imperfection, every wound, every scar of sin is all gone. No sin, no curse, none of the fruits of sin, no effect of sin will ever be felt again. The cross has dealt with it all. When you look at a fellow brother or a fellow sister, you will see the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in them. And when you look at your brother or your sister next to you, you'll see him or her without any trace of imperfection or impurity he or she will be perfectly holy. And you'll look on, look on this amazing new person and you'll admire the Lord Jesus Christ who brought it about. And that, Paul says to the Thessalonians and to us and to all believers, it is why it is worth pressing on, persevering. We cannot contemplate the joy and reward that awaits those who persevere to the end. Verses 11 to 12, Paul is praying for them. With this in mind, he says, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him 
according to the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray for you. Can you say that? It was great that Daph said we should pray for Pastor Gideon for six months. Now, I don't know about you, but my prayer life is extraordinarily erratic. I can be fired up like an occasion like tonight and pray for a few days and then it all settles down to that normal level of mediocrity and you get spikes don't you of where you're enthusiastic in prayer but Paul committed himself relentlessly to praying for those that he knew and loved and even those that he didn't know When do you pray, Paul? Verse 3, we are always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters. We constantly pray for you, verse 11. To whom do you pray, Paul? Our God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Our God, our Lord Jesus Christ. No distinction because Paul was an apostle. No superior fast-track access to the throne of grace for Paul. He embraces all of them as brothers and sisters, saved by grace, And the God he prays to is the one that they pray to. And we all have that privilege of prayer. What do you pray? We've already read it, that God may make you worthy of his calling. By his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. He's called you Thessalonians. He's got a plan for you, a good plan. And I'm going to pray that that plan might be worked out in your life in every detail. That he who called you and saved you will keep you on the road and not let you drift and not let you stray. Paul says, I'm praying that you'll persevere and go on to the end. Now, do we pray like that for each other? Every Christian here tonight is beset by temptation. There are a thousand traps waiting for you today and a thousand more tomorrow. The devil has all sorts of hidden tricks and he's wicked with them. And we cannot keep going on our own. And show that growth that Paul commended the Thessalonians for. We've got to keep praying for each other as Paul prayed for the Thessalonians. Why do you pray, Paul, that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him? Frankly, friends, the Lord Jesus will either be glorified in you or blasphemed in you. One or the other. You profess the Christian faith, you slip you walk out on it, the world would say, ha, yep, told you, that doesn't work. You were far too narrow and restrictive in your views. And once more, the Lord's name is in the mud. Now, if we keep on growing in faith, growing in love, focused on the coming of our Lord Jesus, living in the light of that great day, the world stands back and says, well, we don't understand that. We don't understand that. Some see it. And the name of the Lord is lifted up. What's your confidence then, Paul, as you pray? It's according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. God wants to do sinners good. And he says, as I pray for you, Silas joins me and Timothy as well. We pray that you won't fall away. We pray that Christ will be glorified in you and you will be glorified in him. (coughs) And we don't pray with trembling or doubt or fear we know God wants to do us good and he's good to sinners and that grace comes from God through the Lord Jesus Christ and we can be confident as we pray it was wonderful to see and hear that that Chinese gentleman was released and went back to his little girl people prayed they prayed extensively they prayed thoroughly they prayed intelligently they prayed passionately and God heard them 
So, as we finish, questions. Are you making progress in the Christian life? Am I? Am I growing in faith, in knowledge, and my belief and my trust in the Lord Jesus? Is my love growing? Am I living in the light of the last day, knowing and believing that there's going to come a time when the Lord Jesus will come and everything will be sorted out, wrongs will be put right, and all my sin, the presence and the effect of my sin will be gone? Am I praying for you? Are you praying for one another? We won't give the last word to Paul. We'll give the last word to another New Testament writer. We don't know his name. He wrote the letter to the Hebrews. And he said this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance. The race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer, the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen.